Uh, March 18, 2012, lecture discussion, excuse me, number 61 on the book of Romans. And uh, today is going to be the last of these lectures that are focused on the subject of substance dualism or Cartesian dualism for a while. I'll still intersperse it. I'll still bring it to the fore a little bit, but I won't focus on it so much like I'm doing today. There's just a few things left to do. Uh, this is one of them that's going to take the whole uh, the whole topic. But after today, um, this will, like I said, it'll be kind of a, an addendum and not really the entire lecture. Because I really got to transition into James chapter 2, as you know, so that we can return to Romans chapter 5. However, as always is the case, uh, Scripture raises, constantly raises. You can't read the Bible without finding how you're made, how the, how the man is designed, or the design of man, if you will. What I mean by that is that the Bible rarely has a passage, it just doesn't, or a paragraph that, that doesn't raise the spiritual and the physical. So just recognize, when I go through the Bible, try to find that which is a spiritual issue. You know, uh, uh, Steve and, and Talia are having intense fellowship over worship. That which is spiritual and that which is physical, that contrast is everywhere in the Bible. Um, and understanding that is extremely important to you. There isn't a paragraph that doesn't raise it or the interaction between the two. And as you know, the book of Romans is based on being saved by what kind of process? How are you saved? You are saved by a spiritual process. That's the whole book of Romans. I could stop now. That's what the book of Romans is doing, is proving that we are saved by a spiritual process. Belief, that's a mental entity, if you will, or a mental prop property. It is not physical. It is mental. It's spiritual, it's belief, it's faith. And we have belief and faith in the truth that God did what? What did he do? God, who is spirit, added humanity. Do you see what's happening, what I'm doing to you? We are saved in the book of Romans by a spiritual process based on a spiritual belief that God, who is spirit, added humanity and died how? Physically. He shed his blood, that is a physical process, so that we would be physically resurrected and restored to the spiritual soul that is disembodied. So again, that's everything with respect to this dualistic interactionism. So I just want you to notice that all the time. We are saved by believing, by accepting Christ's shed blood. We are not saved by our physical work. We are saved by whose work? We are, we are saved by His work. Okay? Not saved by our work, saved by His work. Our, our work is always called works. We are not saved by our works. His is called work. One is plural and one is not. But again, notice the elements of his plan of salvation, his system of salvation that he designed before he made time, right? It predates time with regard to creation. His system of salvation, the spiritual God, God who is triune, three who are one, God who is spirit, triune spirit, Genesis 3.22 and John 4.24, the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, adds humanity. 
so that the invisible God becomes visible. What's visibility? That's a physical process. That's reflected light onto my, the lenses of my eyes and a chemical process that's in the brain. And the brain, that process, which is a light, electrical, a chemical, that process is then uh, evaluated by the mind. And I'm able to have meaning and understanding assigned to it, okay? So the invisible God, the second person of the triune God head, adds humanity so that the invisible, the spiritual God, can become visible, Colossians 1.15. Or say it this way, or so the spiritual becomes visible. Or say it this way, or so that the spiritual adds physical. So again, you're dealing with this every place you go in the Bible. Then the God-man dies physically as a legal substitute. And by the way, he's resurrected physically. Body resurrection. You'll find many cults today that deny the body resurrection of Christ. Well, that gives you all kinds of sacrificial system problems. That means his sacrifice is not acceptable because it went into corruption. But I want you to see that he lives physically or resurrected physically. uh, And that would fit very, very well with this constant physical, spiritual issue that is all through Scripture. If you see only that, that will help you. The God-man dies physically, is resurrected physically as a legal substitute for those, uh, for those of us, all of us, who worship and believe spiritually in what is called the name of Christ. The name of Christ is this um, basin, if you will, of all of these things that is true of Christ. And when we believe the spiritual act, and this physical work that is done by the spiritual God, then we will be resurrected physically and have eternal life as God defines eternal life, 1 John 5.13. So I'm saying this again just to give you this constant, ever-present theme that's in his word, how it works. This, this theme of the truth of the combining, if you want to call it that, I have very, other, I have very few ways to describe it after a while, but it's the combining if you will, of the spiritual reality and the physical reality. And I, again, submit that you cannot read one page of the Bible without finding Cartesian or substance dualism. You cannot read one page of it. And if you go by the Bible and don't see it there, chances are you have not read it very well. God has permeated his book, marinated the Bible with with this truth, much to the dismay and the subsequent hatred of those who believe in evolutionary monism or what I also call the physicalists. They cannot stand this, and they do not like it when people talk about it. And if they find any of my sermons on the Internet that deal with it, they rate them badly. And they are very frustrated with substance dualism. As you may know, there are a lot of churches that have tried to incorporate physicalism into their doctrine because they want to be, uh, what's the word I want, accepted by the scientific monistic community. It doesn't work. They're mocked by that community anyway because everyone knows that has studied this, that evolutionary monism is completely incompatible with Scripture. Completely. There's no possibility you can reconcile the two. You're just doing it in order to get along with your friends at tea parties. But it won't work. It's intellectual bankruptcy, and everyone on the other side knows it, and they mock those who try it. Okay, to review just a bit, last week, lecture number 60, 
we spent quite a bit of the time on the necessity of the continuity of the soul or the continued existence of the soul, spirit, mind, whichever you wish to identify it, after the physical death of the body. Thinking of it as the mind is, is perfectly fine. Uh, and I've been, the continuity of soul is my kind of little joke here. I've been proving Cronus through second law, which states that without the continuity of the mind or without the continuity of the spirit or without the continued consciousness of the mind, that's what I mean by continuity, continued consciousness, or, or without the mind, the mental properties that we have surviving the physical death of the body, without that being true, there is no resurrection. That's Chronister's second law of the continuity of the soul. Without the mind, without the soul, without the spirit, whatever you want to call it, continuing to exist after death, there is no resurrection. That is how important continuity of the mind or the soul is. And not only do you say that, that there is no resurrection, if you have that view, you are saying there is no real resurrection or true resurrection. There's an illusionary resurrection. But you're also proclaiming that God is not good. So the soul or the mind must have continuity after death. Or you end up in a place where you are saying, proclaiming that God is not good and that there is no true resurrection. No genuine one, just illusionary one, imaginary. And God is not good, of course, is blasphemy. That's Isaiah 5.12. You are blaspheming the name and the character of God. If the church adopts physicalism, this is what always happens, proclaiming that God is not good. happens every time. It's happening today. Very large churches have incorporated monism or physicalism in some form, and they've all ended up saying that God is the author of evil. Everyone. So, calling, questioning the goodness of God, declaring God to be the author of evil, is evil, Isaiah 5.20, as God defines evil. God is... You see what you do. I hope you understand this. I'll try to do it in a way that will make sense. If you say God is not pure good... And many do in different forms. What's the number one form today that people say God is not good? Happens all the time. I listen to the radio, listen to all, the, and, and I'm, I'm running out of gas and, uh, and listening to the radio now because it's always the same thing. Talk radio. God is not able is what they say today. Very common. God is not able. God is... Uh, just can't get the job done. He can't stop all the catastrophes. He can't stop the floods. He can't stop the tornadoes. He can't stop the earthquakes. He is not able. I hope you understand that that is exactly the same as saying this. God is evil. Can you make that logical leap? It is not very far. It's a little tiny step. If God is not pure good, if God is not able, then you have no place left to stand but with sin. Uh, you have placed sin with God. God is good. This is all there is. There is no, let me put evil over here, and death over here. There is evil, death, and sin, and there is God, and there is goodness and love, okay? And justice. 
God is either good, just, holy, and loving, or there is evil, sin, and death. There is no compromise. I can't put any of these over here. And not able is one of them. If God is not pure good, you have no place left to stand but with sin, evil, and death. You have placed sin in, in God. If you move sin over here, because inability is sin ultimately, you'll figure that out, I hope, as you, as you go through this thought process in your head. If I put sin over here, what have I done to God? I've eliminated something. The minute I have moved sin over to the God golem, what have I done? What have I eliminated? There's no pure blood now. All I have is sin blood. And if I have no pure blood and no pure flesh, then what have I lost? There's no salvation. There's no salvation. There's no what? There's no resurrection. God is absolute pure good always. He's the one that says there is a blessed hope of resurrection. And you have to be very careful saying resurrection is illusionary. We covered that last week. That is, by the way, the crux of Chronister's second law. That if you are in a situation where you're bringing the goodness of God into, into play, if you will, or into you know, putting it on the table, then you are affecting salvation, resurrection, all kinds of problems. God says there is a blessed hope of resurrection. And that means resurrection is what? Good. Because God is what? Good. He can have no resurrection that isn't good. You cannot put a resurrection in God's column that's not good. Now, the physicalists, the churches that have taken physicalism, and they have said, at physical death, what do they say about us, these churches that do this, not to pick on them? Okay, I'm picking on them. What did those churches say, those, those, those sects? What did they say? If they say this, they say the body dies... And, the, and what dies with it? The soul dies. Both die at death. But that's okay, they will tell you when they knock on your door. It's okay that the soul dies. And I'm saying to you, Chronister Second Law, if the soul dies at physical death, then there is no true resurrection. But they'll say to you, it's okay, the soul dies. What dies with the soul? Last week I, I made the com comment, let me just go over it as bang, bang, bang here as best I can. If there, if there is death of the soul, then resurrection is illusionary. It, because by that I mean if there is no self-identification, no proof of self, and no means of proving that we are who we are. In other words, last week I said it this way. I have to know that me is me, and you have to know that you is you. I have to know that you are you, and you have to know that me is me. So I have to know me is me, and I have to know you is you. I have to know that in order to prove resurrection. Because the first thing I'm going to say, as I said last week, to repeat again for those who missed it, first thing I'm going to say when I'm resurrected, I'm going to run to my family, and I'm going to go... It's me, and I've got to know it's me. And you've got to know it's you, and it's a whole big me and you thing going on. Self-identification. If I can't prove it's me, if there is no proof of self, and there's no means of proving that we are who we are, or we are who we were, 
then God has been reduced to a creator of unfounded illusion. Because then you have made God, into the, you put him into this position, the artificial implanter of memories into the newly created body of another. Uh, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I want to read it just perfectly here to make sure you've got it. How I get there, how I make, uh, how you, how that particular doctrine that says the soul and the body, there is a soul, that's what they say, there is a soul, and there is a body, and they are separate, but when the body dies, the soul dies too. That's what they teach. And that makes God the creator of illusion, the artificial implanter of memories into a newly created body of, of another. And I asked this question last week, where is the comfort in that? How am I to be consoled with that? Here's what they will say. Hi, Steve. Your family has utterly perished. Your family has perished. Complete cessation of existence. The body died and dissolved completely, and the soul utterly perished with the death of the body. It's called biblical holism, by the way. W-H-O-L-I-S-M. That's what they teach. Your family has utterly perished. Cessation of existence, complete cessation of existence. But don't worry, don't worry, because God will make a different body. So he'll create a new body for them. Okay, and then what will he do? Well, he will, what he will do then, at at some future date, don't worry, a different body than theirs will be made by God, and he will place memories into them, And this new person will be deceived into thinking that they're you. Or they will be deceived into thinking that they're your family, in this case. So let me repeat that. Don't worry. Your family has utterly perished, body and soul, complete cessation of existence. But at some future date, a different body than than your family's will be made by God, and he will place memories into them, and this new person will be deceived into thinking they are your family. That's where you end up if you say there is no continuity of soul. Is that goodness? Would you define that as God being good? You have to be able to prove that you are you. To who? To yourself. Otherwise, there's no resurrection that is of any value. And it isn't good. And by the way, who would want to believe that? Who wants to believe that? That's everywhere today. That's very common. Yes, sir. Oh, that's a very good question. And those of you on the Internet, I mentioned last week that there's a motive. They have an agenda to this. What is their motive? Why would anyone want to believe this, much less teach it? It makes no sense. Some of the largest churches in the country believe this. Because what it is, is a commingling of physicalism. They, they need the soul to die at physical death. So that the f- soul is emergent from the body. In other words, everything is a physical process. There is no spiritual process after death. And I say, if you accept that position, you have no resurrection. And I'm not giving up resurrection. You have no self-identification. You have no, no self-awareness. You've lost your subjectivity. You don't know you're, you're you. I'm not willing to give that up. And I don't want you to give it up. I'm not willing to give it up for my dog. 
I want my dog to know she's her. That's the blessed hope. That's the goodness. Why would I preach something that isn't good? Why would I tear apart the goodness of God? Why would I even put it on the table, much less preach it every day and make people try to believe it? Why would I completely put this... What's a word I can use that'll go on the Internet? Why would I put this even out there? What does it get me? Well, only the ones, they'll teach you this, they'll say this, that only the ones that believed before they ceased to exist are going to be resurrected. Okay? That's what they tell you. What happens to the others? They're forever annihilated. It's called annihilationism. Now, some didn't like that. Because you, if you annihilated people, then where's the justice in annihilationism? So then they have God resurrecting the really bad people and judging them and then annihilating them again. Okay? You laugh. That passes for teaching today. I have book after book after book on it. I bought them all. I couldn't believe people actually would write it, much less sell it. But my point is, is that goodness? Is that what I just described to you? Goodness, is that really, is that what you're looking for? Is that the blessed hope? I want you to see the implications that if there is no continuity of the mind, no continued consciousness, the problems that come immediately, what you do to God, if if He doesn't have continuation of you as you, then you are end up in a position where you are calling Him ungood or not good. And if you're calling Him not good, then He's evil and then no one's saved. You have lost salvation. Only continued consciousness... Let me say this as harshly or as clearly as I can. Only continued consciousness after death is proof that you are you. It's self-identification. It proves self. If you cease to exist in any way after death, you will not know that you are truly you. Only continued consciousness proves self. Only continued consciousness is continued self-awareness. Does that make sense to you? If it does, go to funerals. And they stand up there and say, well, he's dead and he's gone, but he had a good life and he, he'll live on in our memories. And uh, No. He'll live on in the DNA of his children. No. He lives on because he lives on. He has continued consciousness. I will always know that me is me, and you will always know that you is you. That is God's great promise. That is the written blessed hope of the Bible. That is, is goodness. Nothing else is goodness if you begin to evaluate it. No other system will be good but that one. And it's the only solution, by the way, to the self-identification or what's called the self-identity problem. If you get into philosophy, the self-identity problem and the mind-brain problem are two problems that no one can be, no one's able to solve. They say they're unsolvable. How interesting that the Bible truth of the immortality of the soul solves both of them. Bang. And constantly solves it over and over and over again in Scripture. It immediately solves these two supposedly great puzzles. God is so lucky. Okay? Now, that pretty much wrapped up last week. And I hope you got it. And if you don't, think it through. You'll figure it out. It's not that hard. 
And you need to sometimes think it through. Now we're moving on to the next thing. Human will. Let's shift to it a little bit and ask the obvious questions. Let's start with physicalism or monistic evolutionary philosophy. Same thing. Or material reductionism. All big words, but all the same thing. Makes you good at Scrabble. So it has value. Physicalism is the philosophy or the belief that all things are material. All things have a material uh, basis or material uh, uh, origin and are reducible to particles. And the particles are going to have a mass, charge, location, and size. So the physicalist says that all things, all things have mass, charge, location, and size. That's evolution. That's monism. What did I just put on the board? Human will. They're going to say that human will has mass, charge, location, and size. Got to. They're physicalists. All things are physical. There are no non-physical properties. That's what they say. That's being taught in third grade science. And physicalists also say that when you die, you will what? Utterly cease to exist. That's being taught every school in the United States every day. Proclaimed as loud as they can. That's in your newspaper every day. I can't think of a newspaper that isn't a a, a monistic-based newspaper. I can't think of a TV show that isn't monistic. It permeates our culture today. When you die, you cease to exist. Is that goodness? Is that what God designed? Okay. So physicalism, the philosophy or the belief that all things are material and reducible to particles that have mass, occupy space, have a location, or or, I'm sorry, have mass, um, occupy space, or have a location, have size and a charge. In other words, all things are physical. There are no non-physical, no immaterial entities. There is nothing that is non-physical. There is nothing that cannot be described or reduced to a physical particle. Okay? And physicalists assert that randomness, therefore, or purposelessness, is a fact. In other words, there is only chaos. There is only, there's a big debate. You'll see it all the time if you get any of the magazines that, that talk about these kinds of things, scientific concepts. They'll always have a debate in there. Does the universe have purpose? And you'll have one side that says no, and then you'll have another side that hopes there is. And, of course, if I'm a scientist and I'm studying the universe and I'm able to figure things out, what do I have to assume in order to figure out how the universe works? I have to assume it has purpose. But a physicalist cannot believe there's any purpose to anything. There must be just chaos and random, or if you will, luck. There's no purpose. Purposelessness, randomness is fact. And therefore, humans have no human free will. There is no free will in the physicalist's realm of thinking. He has no room for it. It can't be true. And how they arrive at their position is really quite logical. If you're a physicalist, you have to, you have to proclaim that you have no will. That'll make sense, I hope, in a, in a minute. 
In fact, if you are a devotee to evolutionary philosophy, you must believe that human free will doesn't exist. Now, i got to insert here, i got to include the hyper-Calvinists, bless their hearts, into this discussion. They also preclude free will. And that's one of my big concerns with hyper-Calvinism, is that they agree with the physicalists. And any time I'm agreeing with somebody that believes in cessation of existence, or the fact that there is no continuity of the soul, that there is no true resurrection, then I, uh, I, I'm worried. I submit that one should notice who agrees with one. So if the evolutionary monists agree with your doctrine, that is an immediate cause for concern. So I don't want to make the hyper-Calvinists mad at me. <laughs> okay, I don't mind if the hyper-Calvinists are mad at me. Um, I really don't. I want them to know immediately, though, who's on their side, and that should worry them. So, human will. I'm going to res- restrict the debate today to human will for now. But understand, it does expand. Will does. It doesn't have to be just human will. Will expands. Angelic will, as an example. But today, just human will. First, Everyone agrees that there are conscious experiences. Everyone agrees. That there is such a thing as consciousness or conscious experiences. No dispute. And subjectivity. Everyone agrees that there is selfhood or self-awareness or awareness or knowing about knowing or knowing about self. Experience itself. The ability to experience feelings. Everyone agrees that all of that exists and everyone agrees that there is executive control of the mind. So what's the obvious question? Consciousness exists. Everyone agrees that these, that what I just rattled off, self-awareness, self-knowing, self-hood, self-identity, knowing about knowing, all the experience, the ability experience, the executive control of the mind, everyone agrees that that and more are part of our existence. Everyone agrees consciousness exists. There's no dispute. So what's the obvious question? Why? Why does consciousness exist? What's the next obvious question? What's consciousness made out of? Then what's the next obvious question? Has consciousness been made? If consciousness has been made, who made it? What's the next question? Again, why did he make it? Let's concede the hypothetical because omniscience plays a role. God is omniscient. Let me point that out. So, Did he have any other thing he could do, being omniscient, other than create a consciousness? No, because he's omniscient. And he takes into account all possibilities. And if he created consciousness, then that is the only thing that could be done. Why? Because it's good. So there's an absolute. But I'm going to concede the hypothetical. 
Could he have created a world without consciousness? The answer is no, because he's omniscient and he's good. But let's concede the hypothetical. Could he have created a world without consciousness, which means that I have a bunch of robots that don't know that they're robots, that don't have any self-awareness, that don't have any experiences? Is it possible for consciousness not to have been created hypothetically? You'll see this all the time as zombie worlds. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're laughing, but that's exactly how it goes. We have zombie worlds. We have our world. Our world has consciousness. Is it, a, is, there a, does, is it logical, is it possible as a thought experiment to decide that there is a world that did not have or does not have consciousness? A zombie world. Where there is no executive control of the mind. Now, I know immediately you think that you know people that do not have executive control of their mind. And you know what age they are. That they're just automatic machines that cannot think. I know that. Yes. You have, uh, you have will in some form. You can tell your mind to do things and you know it's doing them. You can tell your body to do things and you know it's doing them. You're folding your arms right now. You decided to do that. You can unfold them. Show everybody. No. He made an executive decision to not unfold. Okay? Executive control. If you will, there is a... Think of it this way. Me. I have authority, executiveness. I am in the executive of me. I am in charge of me. Does that make sense? Okay. Why does our existence include consciousness? Why would it be not good if it didn't? Because consciousness is made by a good God. It has to be good. And if it's not there, it isn't good. Zombie worlds are not good. Automatons are not good. There must be consciousness. She, he, sorry. Which one is that, by the way? What child? John really likes, did I hear right? Jonathan really likes this discussion. Or he's hungry. And he's made an executive decision to make sure you knew he was hungry. Executive control starts very, very young. Jonathan knows what he wants. And he got it. And he'll keep doing that until he's 60. Okay, 70. Okay, my dad, I tell you that famous joke where I asked my dad one time, I'm so frustrated. Dad, when do I stop making stupid, stupid decisions? And he was probably 78, 79, and he said to me, I'm hoping next year is a good year for me. So that... that, brought me into despair that I've not got out of yet. Okay. Why is our existence including consciousness? Why is consciousness uh, good for our existence? And my answer to that question is often mocked by the physicalists. Because it's obvious to me that consciousness and free will have a relationship. So these two are the same thing. Human will, or human free will, and consciousness is the same thing. And God intended to create humanity with the capacity to exercise free will. 
Now, hopefully, and I'm mocked for that because they call that, by the way, I'll talk about that in a second. Hopefully, you can reach back to the Matthew 4 lecture series. Do you remember Matthew 4 lecture? Where the lie of Satan, which is called the abundance of your traffic, that is a euphemism for the lie of Satan, if you want to think of it that way, how he went from one angelic being to another, who, by the way, had free will as well. They could make decisions, and they were created with this executive control capability. Uh, They were in charge of themselves in some respect, even though God is omnipotent. I get it. Don't write me. Satan goes from one angelic being to another, Ezekiel 28.16, the abundance of your traffic, the lie of Satan. And it includes the aspect, I call this the five-fold lies of Satan. It's in some lecture somewhere in the Internet. Don't ask me where. I don't know. I wish I did know, but I don't. I know I don't know. Okay? (laughs) But it includes, this lie of Satan includes the aspect that only the rejection of God is proof of free will. Only the rejection of God is proof of free will. Or to word that another way, only by choosing to sin is free will demonstrated. That is one of the lies of the, one of the fivefold lies of Satan. That you can't prove you have free will unless you can rebel against God. Unless you can choose sin or you can choose to reject God, which is the same thing. So you need to be able to refute that lie. You'll run into it all the time, by the way. It's not just in Matthew 4. It's all over the Bible as well, as you would expect. Is choosing to obey, let's ask this, is choosing to obey, is choosing to serve God a free will decision? Okay? Is that executive control of the mind or consecutive executive control of executive charge? If I choose to disobey, that's proof that I have free will. Well, I ask the obvious question. If I choose to obey, is that proof that I have free will? How can one be proof and the other not? So you can now see that in the eternal state or the restoration of all things, and there is no sin because why? Do you still have free will? People ask me all the time, do I have free will in the eternal state, in the restoration? Do you have free will? Yes, you do. You choose to what? To obey, to serve. Here's another, another question. Why did God create conscious beings with this free will? Why did he? Think it again. Go through it again. Do you see that consciousness, okay, again, self-awareness, knowing who I am, experiencing, knowing about knowing, self-identity, subjectivity, consciousness is required in order to have free will. That's why they join together. Do you see that? Do you understand that some have the capacity to sin but will not reject Christ? Jonathan has the capacity to sin but does not have the capacity to reject Christ. Do you see that? Three-year-olds. Jonathan. Okay? I'm throwing these things out here to you whilst I move along. The physicalist, as I've stated repeatedly, believes the mind emerges from the brain. Emergentism. Took it off the board. But that's what he believes. He believes that the mind comes out of a physical process. That it is not independent. The Bible says no. 
The mind is, in, is independent, does not come from the brain or from the physical brain. But the physicalist says the opposite. The mind is emerging from the brain and that the mind is dependent upon the brain so that when the brain dies, the mind dies and ceases to exist. That, and then if I say this, that the brain is the source of the mind, okay, so the, the brain begets the mind, what is the brain? It is what? It's matter, isn't it? It's physical matter. You can remove it and put it on the table and look at it, and it can be reduced to what? It can be re reduced to mass, charge, location, and size because it's physical. If I say the, the brain is the source of the mind and the brain is physical and can, is reducible to mass, charge, location, and size, what have I then said about the mind? The mind is also physical and can be reduced. The mind is then reducible because the mind is now physical somehow. And now, science doesn't know how the mind, how consciousness, how experiences, how human free will, how self-awareness, how subjectivity, how knowing that it's you, me is me. They don't know how that it's physical, but what do they say? Today, we don't know. It's called the mind-brain problem. It's called the self-identity problem. We don't know. We believe that the mind is physical, and we believe that the mind can be reduced, but we don't know yet. That's what they say, yet. Somehow, and someday, science will prove that the mind is physical, and your consciousness is physical. That your thoughts, your ideas, your feeling can be reduced to a particle. Someday, we'll prove that. Somehow. That's what science says today. This is called the scientist of the gaps. There's a gap. This is what we teach, that the mind is emergent from the brain, the brain is physical, the mind is weird. The mind somehow this physical thing took over the body and has all these non-physical properties. But someday, we're going to have a scientist that comes along and proves that the mind is physical. And then what? Then you don't have any free will and you cease to exist when you die. We're going to prove it. And if you're going to cease to exist when you die, then there is no accountability, there is no justice, there is no goodness. And so what do we do? Grab for all the gusto we can because you only go around once in life. We have chaos, anarchy, destruction. I'll get to that in a minute. Somehow, someday, science will prove that the mind is physical. This is called the scientist of the gaps. He's coming. The physicalist admits that they cannot explain how consciousness is physical. But at some future date, some great scientist will come with his extraordinary wisdom. Okay, he's coming, this great scientist is coming, and he will prove that mental events are physically based and reducible to particles, mass, charge, size, and location, closing this gap that science can't, can't quite close yet. That's coming soon. The great scientist is coming. The Messiah scientist. He's coming. He's going to fix it all. He's going to prove it. Now, this is also, they do this also with uh, the fossil record, right? Because they can't close the gaps in the fossil record either. The reason they can't close the gaps for evolution is because evolution didn't happen. But that's okay. Someday the great scientist will come and he will, he will close the gaps in the fossil record. And he will find these billions and billions and billions of intermediary fossils that have to exist to get from a dog to a whale or a cow to a whale in the water, out of the water, 
First the whale has to come out of the water, and then it's got to be a cow, and then it's got to go back into the water. And by the way, the alligators didn't eat it in between when it had no legs. Okay? Some scientist will come, and he will find all of these unavailable fossils that are intermediary. The great Messiah scientist. Have faith. Believe in the coming scientist. The great scientist. Okay? I'm mocking this, aren't I? See where I'm going with it? What will the scientists do, the great coming scientists, that will solve all of these problems? He's just a while, just a future date. Believe that he's coming. So believe that what we say is true, that you have no free will, that your mind is uh, emergent from your brain, that your mind can be reduced, that you will cease to exist physically because someday the great scientist will come and save science. That's what will happen. Is that what have they done? They've done what every movie screenwriter has done. They've stolen the idea from Scripture. That's what they've done. And naturally, I'm being sarcastic, or as uh, Sharon would say, satirical. I'm being that way to demonstrate that the scientist of the gaps is exactly what they accuse the creationists of. They call it instead the God of the gaps, because we will say, well, we can't prove that we're created, but someday God will come. And they say, well, no, you're not created, and someday the scientist will come. It's the same exact argument. And uh, I don't think it's valuable for either side, frankly. I think you can, you can do many things other than to say uh, God did it. You can figure out how God did it and why. That's far more powerful than to just punt. But if you're going to punt saying God did it, at least it's worth something. Steve was talking about uh, what is worship today. What is worship to God? Not me, Internet audience. There's another Steve. We we often call him Boris because he's married to Natalia. I want that to spread around the Internet like everything else that I do. Just to see if it comes back. It's kind of fun for me. My little strange way of doing things. But for today, let's evaluate the argument that consciousness is somehow physical. That will has mass. That feelings are actually tiny particles. That thoughts are tiny particles. That your executive control is a tiny particle. It's reducible when it comes from the brain. And that it is not independent from the law of conservation of energy. That's very important to know how the law of conservation of energy comes into play because energy cannot be created and it cannot be destroyed, right? The law of conservation of energy. The mind, they say, must be uh, emergent from the brain because if it is not emergent from the brain, then how do I explain how it interacts and has executive control of the brain without creating a new form of energy that is non-physical? And I can't do that because I have this beloved law that is ironclad called the law of conservation of energy. And I've often heard this, you know, as you know, I am a physics guy and I have I heard this my whole life, how this is inviolable, that this is ironclad. And I immediately said, well, who says it's inviolable? What if it's not ironclad? I don't know, but it occurred to me, but we'll... I'll assume for now that it is in that it is ironclad. I'll seed the hypothesis. 
and will say that it is. And so the physicalists will argue that consciousness is somehow physical and that will has mass again and that feelings are tiny particles and that uh, we're not interfering with the law of conservation of energy. If we have that, if I have the mind being physical somehow, then I do not come in violation of the law of conservation of energy, and that makes the physicalist very happy. You see, to the physicalist, the mind cannot have the freedom to influence the physical world. Does that make sense to you? The mind can't do that. If mental events, i.e. consciousness or your will, have the ability to occur without being bound to the law of physics or the laws of physics, then that is an anomaly. That's not merely an anomaly. That's not right. That's a catastrophic disaster for the physicalist. That can't be true. So the physicalist, he has to have the law of physics as being supreme. Mental events cannot control the physical brain. Mental events must be physical events. I hope that makes sense to you. That's how he thinks. Because if mental events are not physical events, I violate the law of creating energy. And if mental events are outside the law of physics and are capable of directing the physical brain, willing things to occur, then what has happened to physicalism? Physicalism is destroyed by that. And I love my physicalism. Why, as the physicalist, do I love my physicalism? Because my physicalism gives me the freedom that they don't believe in and the ability, which they don't believe in, because that's executive control, to do what? Anything I want, baby. That's why I'm a physicalist. Because I believe I'm going to cease to exist when I die and there ain't nothing left. So I get to do what I want. So the monists, the evolutionists, have, have concluded that there is no will because will, free will, is a mental property that controls physical things, influences physical things, manipulates physical things. So there can't be free will. There are no mental properties. There's only physical properties. And the law of physics hold. Therefore, everything that occurs isn't willed. If it is not willed, then it has no purpose. If it has no purpose, then it is random. If it is random, then it is chaos. If it is chaos, it is, it is hopeless. That's where you are. Why would the church want to be have any physicalism philosophy in its midst? Now, I realize. Listen, I get it. I've done this kind of lecture lots and lots of times, and it results the same way in Buckets of buckets of drool and blood coming out of the eyes. So why do I keep doing it? One of these days, somebody's going to die, and you're going to want to know. That's what's going to happen. And if all you get from me is there's an old man standing up there, who seems to have got a good idea how this works, I'll take it. I'll take it. If human will is not free, then there can be no justice. Do you understand that? There can be no sense of accountability, no sense of reckoning after death, Anything after death, if there is no human will, if human will is not free, 
any reckoning after death is meaningless. Any judgment after death, meaningless. Because if freedom, if human will is merely a physical process, if the mind is emergent from the brain, okay, then there's no responsibility. There's just physical processes. There's no executive will. There's no control. So if I take the position that the mind is emergent from the brain, and when at death, both of them cease to exist, there's no human responsibility. There's no justice. There's no control. There's, no, there's just physical, uh, chemical reactions, processes. Justice is then what? Impossible. Everything is just luck and chaos. Which is why physicalism will always progress to what? Because it's happened and it's going to happen again. It always progresses to what? Profound evil. Because the physicalist says that humanity will be judged according to physical properties, physical characteristics and physical capabilities, which always leads to mass extermination. They will look at me and say, he can't hit a softball out of the infield anymore, so he is of less value. He can't run up a flight of stairs anymore. Are you kidding? No, I can't. I won't. He has no value anymore because of his physical contribution. If all I have is physical assessment, then I judge people on that alone. And that ends and always leads to mass extermination. They declare infants like Jonathan to be what? Not even people today because they don't believe Jonathan has self-awareness. It is obvious to me that he does and it is obvious to his parents that he does, but they will say that he does not. He has no effective life and therefore he can be what? Exterminated. That's Margaret Sanger, by the way, Mao and Stalin. Anybody that stands up and says Mao is one of my favorite philosophers, oh my goodness, the idiocy of a statement like that can't even be described. One of the most prolific killers of human beings based on physicalism that has ever lived and is in the pit of hell. How evil is it to say that? The Bible says no, no to physicalism. Our value is spiritually based, not physically based. We are all living souls, not bodies. I'm going to do this because it keeps coming up and I got asked to do it. Turn your Bibles to Exodus. You're not going to understand how this fits today. But you will. It's my little bomb that I'm setting for you to go figure out. You go, oh, that's why he did that. He's not nearly as strange as we thought. I loved last week uh, the New Cliffside uh, t-shirt thing. Cliffside Community Chapel, not nearly as horrific as we thought. I just love that. We're doing it. Okay. Go to Exodus 21, 20 through 26. I'm going to read it to you. And you say, can I answer this? And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod, and ask yourself, what does this have to do with today's discussion? 
If a man beats his male or female servant with the rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Do you understand that? So a man beats his female or male servant and the female servant dies, the man who beat them will be punished. Nonetheless, if the servant remains alive a day or two, the man shall not be punished, for the servant is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. But he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Did you get that? If I knock out your eye and you're a servant, i got to let you go. If I take out your tooth, i got to let you go. But if I kill you, if I beat you to death, but you live a couple of days before you die, well, then you're just my property. Let me ask you. Boy, you should see your face. That's in the Bible. Is it good... Is that good? If you're thinking there's something wrong with that, then what's the problem? What are you doing to God? Do you think you have a better system than that? Because that's what I get all the time. Your Bible says that. 3,000 year old book says that. That's bad. Anybody can see that's bad. Really? I'm telling you, that is profoundly good. That's extraordinarily good. Unprecedented goodness. It did something that no society could ever imagine. What did it do? No society had this until here just to give you a little start on it for next week. By the way, what's the first question you should ask when you see something like that in Scripture? How is that a what? How is that a portrait of Christ? Because that has to be a picture of Christ. It has to be. But no society prior to that verse in Scripture had consequences limiting what a slave owner could do, putting consequences to slave owners. By the way, if you pluck out my eye and I get to pluck out yours, what's we, what do we call that? We call that fairness. Because if you pluck out my eye and I cut out your face, that's not fair. You knock out my tooth and I cut off your leg, that's not fair. This is the first time ever that fairness. Somebody kills somebody, you kill them. Fair. You beat a slave to death, you're punished. You can't beat a slave to death without being punished. What's the obvious question, by the way? 
what causes the beating. Who is the slave? What's the difference between an indentured servant and a slave? And then I want you to notice the law of the altar. That is at the end of Exodus 20, because this is the context. 22 through 26 of Exodus 20 is the law of the altar. Who's the altar? That's Christ. I want you to look at the beginning of Exodus 21. That's the law of the servant. That's also Christ. I want you to notice the law of premeditation, the law of lying in wait. I want you to see if God has delivered in the place of refuge in the manslayer. You must go in order. What did I do to you that is classic? I pulled something out of context without giving you the order, and you immediately thought something that was horrible. What did you think? That this was bad. But it can't be bad. It must be good. If you let any time, any thinking that God has made a mistake or is somehow bad, you have destroyed what? Salvation. Resurrection. Continuity of the soul. And there you go down that road. Let's rise and be dismissed.